Hey team, Raphael here with Ask Me Anything for the 2nd of October 2020. Priscilla says, Hi Raph, I hope you're going well. I'm finding your weekly Ask Me Anything so informative and I'm learning and picking up a lot from them. I'm really happy about that, Priscilla. Thank you. I have two questions. I've purchased the ACSM's guidelines for exercise testing and prescription book online, but I'm still waiting on it. Someone who I'm wanting to practice teach with has Crohn's disease, and I'm wondering if there's anything that I should be aware of in regards to modifying or anything at all prior to do doing practice teaching with this person. Also, uh, I'm wondering if you do any courses with the Pilates Cadillac at all. I've previously used this and absolutely loved it. Looking forward to your answers. Have a great week. Priscilla. Well, Priscilla, uh, in answer to your first question, uh, Crohn's disease is an inflammatory autoimmune bowel disease, uh, and, auto, and autoimmune conditions are ones where your immune system attacks your own uh, body cells, and in Crohn's disease, the immune system attacks the cells of the intestines. Um, and so people with Crohn's disease have all kinds of digestive problems and a lot of inflammation in the bowel. Um, and so that will uh, result in a bunch of different symptoms for different people, but uh, gastrointestinal distress, you know, upset tummy, basically, uh, bloating, indigestion, um, constipation and diarrhea, uh, and uh, also people uh, who have autoimmune conditions commonly are prescribed uh, immunosuppressant medications. Um, for example, steroids. Um, so steroids, steroidal drugs, um, suppress the immune response, and so they can help with the symptoms of Crohn's disease and other autoimmune conditions. Uh, and some of the side effects of steroids include, uh, well, I, I actually won't list the side effects of steroids because it's outside my kind of scope of real um, knowledge, but there are going to be some um, side effects from uh, potentially from whatever medications uh, your uh, student is on. So I'll just ask them about that. Like, you know, do you have, an, I'll just literally say, hey, are you on any medication? And is there any side effects from that that might have a bearing on your exercise? Um, so there's nothing dangerous. There's nothing you need to, you know, be worried or concerned about. There's going to be, uh, uh, like, and like any autoimmune condition, um, it's going to have uh, flare-ups and it's a, then it's going to have also periods of remission. So it's going to, you know, have good days and bad days, in other words. So, uh, the, yeah, there's nothing to be afraid of or, you know, worried about. There's, it's just really a matter of the, the person's energy and their comfort. And they're probably going to be, you know, fairly uncomfortable with, um, you know, in their abdomen. So, it, but you'll just have to ask them how that manifests for them. And it might be that they don't like, you know, lying on their tummy or it may, they may be fine with lying on their tummy and maybe they won't like twisting or they may be fine with twisting and they don't like bending forwards, you know. So you'll just have to ask them, um, you know, like 
Are there any positions or things that are particularly uncomfortable for them? Um, I would word it like that, you know, positions that are uncomfortable for you rather than saying something like, oh, is there anything you can't do? Um, rather than setting it up as a can't, I would set it up as like, okay, something that's a bit uncomfortable, which doesn't mean we can't do it and doesn't mean we won't do it. It just means we're not going to spend a lot of time doing it. So, um, yeah, and then uh, I would imagine that um, if I had some kind of chronic health condition, uh, when I was doing a Pilates session, I would like to be just, I wouldn't like to be thinking about my chronic health condition the whole time. I would like to be just doing Pilates and enjoying it. So um, I think the quicker you can get past it and not worry about it and just go, okay, we, there are a couple of positions that you're not going to love, you know, doing and based on what you've, you, uh, what, what they've told you at the start of the session is uncomfortable. So just don't, don't do a lot of those positions. And apart from that, just treat them completely like a normal person. Don't mention Crohn's disease. Don't hover, don't helicopter, don't mollycoddle, just treat them like a normal person. Um, because I imagine that's probably what they want. I uh, hope that helps. Um, and as to the Do We Do courses with Cadillac, uh, well, we run the Diploma of Clinical Pilates, uh, which includes the Cadillac and the chair and the barrels. Um, but we've just run our last one. Uh, we're going to bring actually... Uh, we're going to bring a different version of the diploma back next year, but that's not going to include the Cadillac. And so at this stage, I have to say, no, we don't offer a course with the Cadillac, uh, but asterisk, um, it is something that's on our radar and we uh, possibly slash probably will be uh, bringing in a course of uh, the studio equipment as it's collectively known, the Cadillac, the chair and the barrels. Um, just as a standalone course. So no, not uh, teaching about any other you know, anatomy or clinical science or any of that kind of stuff, but just like, hey, here are some fun and cool exercises on these pieces of equipment. But I certainly can't give you a date on that and we haven't made any firm plans to do it. So I can't even promise you that we're going to do it. But I can say that it's something we've talked about and there seems to be uh, a demand for it. So we probably will do it. Um, and if and when that happens, I will absolutely make sure that we let you know. Okay. Thanks, Priscilla. Sienna says, hey, Raphael, recently I attended one of Rachel's Matwork masterclasses, which was centered more around stretching as opposed to the typical dynamic Pilates. She gave some brief insights about stretching, particularly the differences between active ballistic stretches and passive static stretches. I'd love to listen more on this topic, um, re the long and short-term benefits or possible disadvantages. Um, additionally, I'd like to hear how she created that class um, as I attended, but I wish I'd simultaneously taken notes as an observer because I felt this was such a unique but equally challenging Pilates class. Mentally, my mind felt as if, as if I was floating for the rest of the evening in the most positive way. I would love to incorporate this way of teaching in my own future as an instructor and hear more about how to balance your stretching class with ballistic stretches and static ones to attain that mental feeling within clients. I hope this makes some sense. Absolutely love being a part of the Breathe Education family. Kindest regards, Sienna. Well, thank you, Sienna. Um, so to answer the second part of your question first, you're going to have to talk with Rachel about that. Um, and I'm sure she'd be very keen to hear from you on Slack. And uh, we also um, 
are working on filming or recording all of the masterclasses and we hope to record Rachel's from next week. So uh, from next week, um, you'll have the opportunity to go back and watch again if you want to kind of unpack it for yourself. Um, and I'm sure if you if you even just ping Rachel on Slack and say, hey, I love that stretching class. Could we do more of those? Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the answer to that is sure. Um, so, and as to your question about uh, insights into stretching and the difference between uh, ballistic stretches and passive static stretches. So basically, uh, ballistic means you use momentum. You know, you basically swing your arm or your leg, um, you know, like if you kick your leg up. Um, as far as high as you can kick it, that's a ballistic stretch because you're using the momentum of the leg, um, which ends up stretching the the back of the leg as you as the leg gets up. Uh, whereas a passive stretch is where you just basically relax into the stretch, uh, and passive uh, is one form of static stretching, which just means stretching you do when you're not moving. And ballistic is one form of dynamic stretching, which just means stretching you do when you are moving. So I'm going to kind of broaden out and talk about those two categories rather than talking about specifically ballistic or uh, relaxed stretching. Um, So the benefits of each kind of stretching are actually quite different. So if your goal is to increase your range of motion in the short term like you know as a you 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 know you want to you know be able to touch your toes more or get closer to the splits or something within the next half hour you know like, uh, then both kinds of stretches will give you a very similar short term benefit in terms of increasing your range of motion for about two hours. So you'll get a a short-term temporary increase in range of motion at the joints that you stretch for about two hours after you stretch. Um, And that, you know, mostly goes away after two hours. You know, it it subsides. And then after two hours, mostly it's subsided to nothing. But there's a tiny bit that's residual for about 24 hours. But by 24 hours, you're completely back to baseline, regardless of what sort of stretching you do. Uh, However... If you do that repeatedly, you know, if you do it every day, um, or even if you do it three times a week, uh, with any form of static stretching, there will be a um, progressive effect. So in other words, over time, you will get gradually more flexible. Um, Whereas with dynamic stretching, there's not a progressive effect. So you probably won't get more flexible over time if you do, you know, ballistic or other kinds of dynamic stretching. So although static and dynamic stretching both have a very similar effect in the short term in terms of increasing your range of motion, in the long term, static stretching is more effective for increasing your flexibility. So if you wanted to do the splits and you can't currently do the splits, you need to do probably static stretching uh, in order, you know, on a regular basis in order to do that. And if you just sort of do side splits on the reformer, you know, a dynamic stretch, you probably won't get there uh, as fast or probably at all. 
Um, however, so it's, you know, from that perspective, it sounds like, oh, well, static stretching is awesome. Um, and don't, why would you do dynamic stretching? Well, the drawback of static stretching is that uh, immediately after you do uh, static stretching, so probably for a couple of hours after you do static stretching, your muscles are a little bit less responsive. Well, your nervous system probably is a, uh, a little bit less responsive. Uh, and your your muscles are a little bit, yeah, probably your muscles are a little bit less responsive as well because they deform viscoelastically. So in other words, they they stretch. Um, and so for, for an hour or two after you've done a, a deep static stretch, regardless of whether it's passive or active, your maximum strength and your maximum power that you can produce from your muscles is slightly decreased by roughly 10%, which is, you know, it's not that big of a deal if you're just not going to be going for a jog or doing a Pilates class or something. But if you're competing in an athletic event, well, 10% reduction in strength or power could be the difference between, you know, winning and coming last. So uh, static stretching is really not a good warm-up for athletic activities, whereas dynamic stretching, uh, including ballistic stretching, you don't get that effect. So you get the temporary increase in range of motion from dynamic stretching without any loss of strength or power. So dynamic stretching makes for a marvelous warm-up for any kind of uh, athletic activity. Um, but it's not a great way of gradually increasing your flexibility over time. Whereas static stretching kind of sucks as a warm-up because it, whilst it increases your range of motion, it decreases your strength and power, which is not what you want your warm-up to do. Um, whereas over time, it does give you, if done regularly, a increase in your range of motion. Um, so that would, you know, that's those are pretty much the the, the key points, I think. Um, and so therefore, you know, the best practice would be do dynamic stretching in your warm-up and do static stretching at the end of the session when it doesn't matter if your strength and power go down or just do static stretching on a different day, you know, or at least two hours before um, your session so that any strength decrease is, you know, returns to normal before you do your session. Uh, so finally, there is uh, some benefit for beginners um, to, if you actually just exercise under load through full range of motion, you actually will increase your range of motion uh, you know, uh, progressively, just like static stretching. Um, so something like a side split on the reformer that I said before, you know, won't you know, get you to do the splits. It won't get you to do the splits because the, the effect doesn't keep going forever, but you will get an increase in your range of motion uh, over time, but that will uh, kind of plateau out probably, um, you know, before, you know, uh, you reach the maximum potential range of motion for the joint. Whereas if you do static stretching over time, you know, you can get to do the splits if you have enough dedication uh, and spend enough time doing it if you do static stretching. So I hope that helps. Um, and uh, thanks for the question, Sienna. And we love having you as part of the Breathe Education family too. All right. Genevieve says, hey, Raf, loving the anatomy courses. I'm in 3.0 now and I learn something new and fascinating every lesson, I swear. Well, I'm delighted to hear that, Genevieve. Thank you. A couple of questions, please. One, when flexing the knee, 
for example, in a figure four glute stretch in supine. So that's when you're lying on your back um, and you've got one ankle crossed across the other thigh and you're holding behind the thigh um, that the ankle is crossed over. And so basically you're pulling that thigh towards you and that pulls your other leg into kind of like a cross-legged position, but just on one leg, and that stretches your butt. So when flexing the knee, i.e. in a figure four glute stretch in supine, when the ankle crosses on top above the opposite knee, I hear many instructors say flex the ankle to protect the knee. Can you please anatomically explain this? Uh, well, I had a good think about this one, and I've uh, I've heard that instruction a lot too. And probably back in the day, like fifteen years ago, when I was teaching people figure four glute stretches, I probably told it to them as well. I can't recall, but I, I guess I must have. Um, and I honestly can't think of any anatomical reason why that would make sense. Um, flex the ankle to protect the knee. So I'm not quite sure uh, Yeah, what the basis of that is. My guess is it's just kind of a thing that people have heard other people say, like you've heard other people say it. But unlike you, most people haven't questioned it and gone, huh, I wonder why that is. And everyone just goes, okay, well, my trainer told me that, so I'm just going to say it when I teach people that stretch, even though I'm not quite clear on why that would help. Um, so it is absolutely possible to, uh, you know, to strain the knee if you go way deep um, in that position. And I think you probably wouldn't have the strength in your arms required to actually strain your knee because your knee is just so strong. Um, and most people's arms are just really not anywhere near as strong as their legs. So, you know, it's, I, it's absolutely not something you need to worry about, I think, in that position. Um, but in a in some positions, it is possible, you know, in, a, in, at, in some if you're under more load than you could apply in your arms, I guess is what I want to say, um, it is possible to uh, strain the, the meniscus, the cartilage on the inside of the knee in that kind of cross-legged position. I know because I've done it myself, attempting a half lotus position in yoga, which I had not earned <laughs> the flexibility <laughs> to do properly, but I did have the strength to kind of yank on my leg until it went in there. And then I used to use the weight of my other leg to get it in to go where I wanted it to. And until I heard a loud pop. Um, and that was my meniscus uh, parting. Um, and so, but I'm pretty sure based on, you know, I think I've got a pretty clear picture of how the anatomy works in that area. And I just can't possibly fathom any way that flexing your ankle would change the forces on the knee in any significant way uh, that would protect it. So I would say um, my takeaway, uh, when you're doing a figure four glute stretch, don't worry about flexing the ankle, probably makes no difference whatsoever. Don't be in any way concerned about the health of people's knees in that position either, unless you've got someone who's like got a recent acute knee injury. Um, but apart from that, um, but when you're doing a half lotus, like, yeah, just only do it if you can do it, would be my advice. Um, all right. Question two from Genevieve. My dad has recently discovered he has arthritis in his hip. 
cartilage on one side of his femur, that's the thigh bone, has severely worn. What's the best advice for him? I said, keep moving it with gently, gently with mobilization. Is there anything important or particular I could suggest for him? No problem if not, just throwing it out there. I'm not that knowledgeable um, on arthritis. Thanks so much, Genevieve. Well, Genevieve, you've pretty much nailed it. So uh, the couple of things that will be useful for you to know is the prevalence of arthritis findings in pain-free hips in people uh, over 40 is fairly large. It's I, I couldn't tell you the exact number, but it's like, you know, uh, 30, 40%, you know, somewhere of that order of magnitude. Um, so there are plenty of people walking around with, quote, arthritis, unquote, but never a lick of pain a day in their life, running, playing tennis, rock climbing, doing all of those kinds of things, uh, and never know the difference. So just because he's, you say he's recently discovered he has arthritis in his hip, uh, I'm not sure, you know, the circumstances surrounding that, but um, it may be that he had a scan for an unrelated reason. uh, And they go, oh, by the way, you've got arthritis in your hip, in which case I would say completely ignore it, just keep doing what you were doing. Um, or it may be that he had pain in his hip and then he went for a scan and they found arthritis. Um, and it's not a given that the pain, if the second is the case, um, it's not a given that the pain is related to the arthritis. So like I said before, heaps of people um, without hip pain have arthritic findings in the hip, particularly as we age. And those who do have arthritis in the hip and pain, the, the, there's a very poor relationship between the, the MRI findings, like how severe the arthritis is, and the level of pain or disability that people have. Um, so he may have pain, he may have arthritic changes in the hip, doesn't mean the two are directly connected, although they probably have some relationship. So the things that you can do to reduce, uh, so the things that, things that you can do to help him to re, you know reduce his fear, reduce his uh, disability, are uh, to encourage him that arthritis in the hip is very common in pain-free people and his, you know, and people have full function, even young athletes, a lot of them have arthritis in the hips and knees and things. Um, and it doesn't have to mean pain, and it doesn't have to mean loss of function. Um, and encourage him to get moving, exactly like you said. Um, so, depending on the you know the type of arthritis, there are several types of arthritis. The two ones that are most common: uh, osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, you've said it's in his hip, which suggests to me it's a static. Uh, situation which would suggest osteoarthritis because rheumatoid arthritis is a chronic autoimmune disease. It shifts around the body typically to different joints. So it sounds like he's got osteoarthritis in his hip, which is a super common finding with age and that osteoarthritis is a is not a condition that has kind of flare-ups, as it were. So it's generally just kind of a fairly... Uh, consistent um, sort of set of symptoms um, that don't have major, you know, kind of episodes. Um, And so I would, uh, the advice I would give would be mobilize it, definitely move it through range. That's going to nourish the cartilage. 
Um, so, you know, any kind of movement that loads it and puts it through range is going to be awesome. And I would say, actually, yes, start gently, but build it up, like load it. Um, the current evidence and uh, guidelines, as laid out by the American College of Sports Medicine, um, suggests that high load exercises and even high impact exercises like running, um, there is no evidence that they are harmful to people with arthritis. They do not damage joints further, um, but that people with arthritis and many health professionals um, mistakenly believe that impact and load is bad for joints, whereas in fact the opposite is true, that joints actually require load and uh, movement through range of motion in order to remain healthy. So uh, I would recommend move it, start gently if he's unfit, um, because regardless of arthritis or no arthritis, if someone's unfit, you should start gently, um, move it through full range of motion, and then gradually build the load, build the intensity. And, you know, if he wants to walk and jog and do loaded squats with a barbell, like, yeah, all of those things should be totally on the cards. Um, if he gets a little bit of discomfort in his hip, refocus him away from that during exercise because uh, another thing is that people who have scary diagnoses on a scan, uh, when they do exercise, uh, they may misinterpret the normal discomfort of doing exercise. You know, like when you exercise, sometimes your muscles hurt a bit, like that's normal. Um, but people who've got a scary sounding diagnosis, they, you know, your dad might feel like muscles in his hip working and think, oh no, I'm damaging my hip. Whereas in fact, all he's feeling is his bum working or something or his hip flexors working. So I would uh, sort of refocus him away from those sensations uh, if he sort of mentions that during a session and say, you know, if he says, oh, I can feel this in my hip, you go, yeah, great. That's That means you're getting stronger and, you know, do you reckon you can do another five? So I'll just sort of keep him focused on, you know, the next goal within the session, how many reps he can do or whatever. Can you go a bit deeper for me or, or any of that kind of thing? Um, and use as a guide his symptoms after the session within two hours. So if he feels discomfort in his hip during the session, don't let that concern you or him. Um, and if the discomfort's still a little bit raised at the end of the session, uh, even when you stop, that's fine too, but it should settle within a couple of hours. And so if his symptoms don't settle within two hours after the session, you know, back to the level that they were before the session, that probably means you overdid it a little bit and you need to just, you know, wind it down a little bit for next time, uh, the intensity level, um, so that he can tolerate it, but then gradually build it back up. So build it back up at a, at a slow enough pace that, you know, you try not to exceed that kind of two hour window where symptoms will settle within two hours. But if you get it wrong, it's no big deal. It just means he's up for, you know, three hours of discomfort after the session or a day of discomfort after the session. It's no big deal. You're not going to do any damage to him. So I hope that helps. Mimi says, hey, Raph, hope you're well. Thanks for all these Ask Me Anything videos. They're great. Did you know if you have to get any permits from the council to teach Pilates at your house or backyard and what the process will be to teach in local parks? Thanks. Uh, well, Mimi, uh, I uh, looked and found that there is something called the Australian Business Licence and Information Service, or ABLIS, A-B-L-I-S, which is 
uh, and I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's ablis.business.gov.au. And the website there is pretty helpful. And it basically takes you through a little uh, guided process where you just tick the boxes of what sort of business you want to start up and all that kind of stuff. And then it tells you, uh, and you put in your address, um, because some of these laws are local council specific, and it'll tell you what council you're in. Uh, you don't actually put in your actual address, you just put in like your postcode. Um, and then it'll tell you what permits and you need, if any, and it'll tell you uh, what legislation is going to apply, like whether privacy legislation is going to apply or, you know, whatever. Um, and so... I took the liberty of looking up your uh, address in our database uh, and put in your postcode and looked through there and it turns out that you don't need a permit, as far as I can see, to run a business in your home, but the home must be your place of residence. Uh, and I, you know, I put the details I put in, I don't know anything about your business. So, you know, I said you're not going to be employing people and uh, answered a bunch of other questions, which I'm not sure if I gave the correct answers for. So you should definitely go and do that uh, form yourself. And that's ablis.business.gov.au. Um, and in term, in relation to teaching in local parks, you will have to, that's a local council issue and the local councils have different rules. So some local councils require, uh, so this would be basically come under personal training um, the council, you know, like you'll never find anything relating to Pilates. So just type in fitness or personal training in parks um, in your local council um, area. And what you'll uh, find is that, you know, council, some councils require you to have a permit and some and it's free and you just go to the council and get it. And some councils charge you for the permit. Uh, so, and that's just going to be up to the specific policies of your local council. So you just have to go and look that up. But um Pro tip, don't, don't look up Pilates because that won't be listed anywhere. Look up fitness or personal training in parks um, in your local council area. All right, hope that helps, Mimi. Amy Welsh says, Hi, Raphael, I have an AMA for you. I'm wondering if you can help me with a question I have about spinal mobility. I'm, almost 40 years ago, my mum had a Harrington rod spinal fusion surgery as treatment for scoliosis in the upper and lower spine. She now has zero spinal articulation along a large majority of her spine. I've been planning on doing a practice teaching session with her. However, I'm wondering if there are any known contraindications for exercises in this instance that I should consider. As well, any tips and tricks to best work around the lack of mobility? Cheers, Amy. Well, Amy, uh, so Basically, what's happened with your mum is she had a literally a steel or possibly titanium rod uh, bolted to her spine, and it sounds like along the full length of it, pretty much, you said upper and lower. So basically, now your mum's spine is literally immobile, like it cannot bend because it's got a steel or titanium rod bolted to every vertebra along its full length by the sounds of things. So um, you, so she absolutely doesn't have any spinal mobility and there's nothing you can do to change that because there's a steel bar in there and that's not going to bend. So uh, 
there are no contraindications, although there are some things that she'll find impossible to do, like a roll-up uh, or a roll-over, um, or you know things that require her to bend, like swan dive. Um, so, you know, it's not going. It's not dangerous to do any of those things. She just won't be able to do them because she can't bend. So, um, but can you work the same muscles as those exercises? And could you probably modify them pretty easily? Yeah, sure. So to do the roll up, um, you know, your mum can still do that exercise, but because she can't curl her torso, her torso will form a longer lever. And that will mean that it'll be basically impossible for her to get up off the floor probably without lifting her feet off the floor. So if you simply kneel at her feet and push your hands down on her front of her ankles, she should be able to sit up relatively easily. Well, in terms of her weight distribution, but it'll probably be a you know a good workout for her. And uh, that will enable her to do you know, to work the exact same muscles as she'd work in a regular roll-up, but just without the rolling part. Um, and, you know, the forward bend at the top, obviously, she won't be able to bend, but she can still reach, and that will stretch her back of her legs, and, you know, just like it would if she was doing the full roll-up. So, you know, you can basically modify most of these exercises. I think something like roll over is kind of one I would go, yeah, I can't really think of a way that she would enjoy that. Um, and it's probably, you know, just easier to leave it out. Um, if she was hell-bent on, you know, achieving it, yeah, we could probably figure out a plan for her to, to, to work up to doing it, but involve a lot of modifications and, you know, progressions and stuff like that. And you'd never get her spine to bend, so you should have to be kind of like propped up on her shoulders and her neck and, well, you know, so it's kind of like, yeah, is it really that important that she does that one? Unless she's got a particular ambition to do it, I would just say, yeah, let's not let's not mention the rollover. Um, for something like the swan dive or swimming, you know, exercise where you lie prone on your tummy and lift up, well, she won't be able to do that because she can't bend. Um, but if you could put her on a bolster or cushion or ottoman or your baby barrel or you know, blocks or something under her kind of lower torso, so under her hip bones and, you know, tummy and lower ribs, um, then no, she won't be able to lift her chest off the floor, but her chest will be unsupported. So she will still be able to sort of do the arm movements and leg movements and get the benefit, you know, work the same muscles as the swan dive or the swimming, for example, or the double leg kick or whatever. Um, so that that's what I would suggest is, uh, you know, get her up on something. Or if you've got a reformer box, you know, just lie her on her tummy on the reformer box with her chest off the end of the box. Um, and that'll basically get her working the same muscles as you would in exercises lying prone on the floor. Um, and tips and tricks to best work around a lack of mobility. Well, we, you know, we kind of uh, covered a couple of those. But the only th other thing I would add is, well, when you – you know, the, the body is a whole series of joints. And when you lose mobility in some of those, you can, to a large extent, or sometimes completely, make up for that by increasing mobility at other joints. So what other joints does she have? Well, she's got her hips and shoulders. She's got her knees and elbows. She's got her ankles and wrists. And she's got her neck. So uh, you can absolutely spend some time stretching her hips 
um, her ankles and her shoulders, I would say, uh, and to get her, you know, the best possible range of motion in those joints, which will allow her probably to bring her hands, you know, more easily to her feet to get dressed or, you know, um, to reach overhead to do the washing or, or, or whatever, you know, get a, get the coffee down from the shelf. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of a basic um, sort of rule of thumb when someone has a, a limitation in mobility in one or more joints, you in you know you work to increase the mobility at the other joints. So I hope that helps, Amy. Bo says, Hi Raf, I'm supporting a below the knee amputee who wants to know more about the biomechanics of his leg which affect him when walking with a residual lower limb. I'm not sure if that means if she means if you mean limp. Um, are you able to help him by any chance? I can get more information from uh, the client if that helps. I'm just wondering how he would access if this information. He's willing to pay for this information. The client is a humble, patient, intelligent person who's keen to learn more about his body-specific muscles and how they work to engage other parts of his body that are needed for walking. For example, quads, extensors. He's desperately seeking any strategies so he can teach his brain how to use the right side better and lower residual limb effectively. I'm not sure, again, if you mean limp there. Um, He has been using the left prosthetic leg and left side of his body to compensate for his whole body for 25 years. However, he was never taught how to use the RLL, uh, right lower leg, I guess you mean there, correctly, or shown how to walk effectively would you be able to share any links, appropriate resources, or possibly a prosthetist referral um, as a next port of call, as I know how busy you are in general? I know he would really appreciate any knowledge in this department, which is your area of expertise. Regards, Bo. Well, uh, Bo, I'd say this uh, part of this is this is partly inside my area of expertise and partly outside. So uh, typically what happens when somebody has a uh, an amputation is they go through a rehabilitation process with a physiotherapist. Um, and there are physiotherapists whose training uh, is specific to this situation. So there are there are physios who work full-time in hospital inpatient or outpatient uh, rehab wards where they basically spend all their time teaching people how to walk again who've had either uh, spinal cord injuries or amputations or Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis or, you know, whatever it might be that has uh, interfered with their, or a stroke, you know, which has interfered with their ability to walk and basically reteach them to walk. So I would look at, um, uh, you know, inpatient or outpatient rehab, you know, physiotherapy clinics. So not a, not a, not a regular physiotherapy clinic where they where you go if you've got a sore back, but I'm talking about somewhere in a hospital, probably. Um, where you know they deal specifically with retraining people how to walk every day, and that's their kind of what they do all day. Um, but I can tell you the basic outline of the process, and this is where it does come inside my area of expertise a little bit, which is that it is a motor learning construct that you're talking about. So basically retraining uh, this person how to walk as efficiently as possible. Um, and there's a little bit of biomechanics in there as well. Now, you know, obviously I haven't seen this fellow walk, so I can't pass any judgment on, you know, how efficient or inefficient his current walking strategy is. But I would say to you that firstly, 
are all humans are asymmetrical and being asymmetrical is not necessarily a problem. So if he's uh, able to, you know, do the activities that he wants to do, you know, if, if he's got particular activities that he's engaged in and he's able to do those, then, you know, that's not a problem. But if it's, if it's preventing him from participating fully or at all in some activities that he wants to do, well, to that, to the degree that that's the case, it's a problem. Uh, the other thing is, does he have, you know, does he have pain? And you don't mention that he does, so I'm going to assume that maybe he doesn't. Um, and if he doesn't have pain and he doesn't have functional limitations, well, then I don't particularly see a reason to uh, worry about it. You know, the body um, is incredibly adaptable and the brain also is incredibly adaptable. And if he's had this uh, situation for 25 years, his brain has probably adapted really well and he's compensating really well. Um, so it's kind of an if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. However, if it's, pre- like I said before, if it's preventing him from participating, you know, fully in um, some activities or if, or if he's in a great deal of pain, then yeah, to that extent, it is a problem and probably you, know, you can do something about it. Uh, and, but the, but the, purely the fact that he's asymmetrical, I think is not an issue. Uh, there are plenty of examples of elite athletes who are asymmetrical, like Usain Bolt, the fastest human who's ever walked the planet, um, takes unequal length strides when he runs um, and has a scoliosis. So, you know, he doesn't have symmetrical um, use of his legs. He he has a stronger leg and a more mobile leg, and um, that seems to work fine for him. So yeah, merely the fact of being asymmetrical, not a problem, but you know, to the degree that it's impairing, uh, impairing his function and enjoyment and to the degree that it's painful, okay, that's a problem. Uh, in which case I would go see a physiotherapist in a, specifically in a rehab ward. So someone who they deal with strokes and amputees um, and where they do it on a routine basis. So I hope that helps Bo. Camilo says, hi Raf, just wanted to ask a question regarding the liability waiver template plate that Breathe Education supplies for us. The first acknowledgement in the form states that the client is over 18 years of age. What if as an instructor I plan on working with all ages, most being under 18 years old, would I need to speak with my insurance provider or just simply reword the template? Thank you. Uh, well Camillo, uh, the reason we have that in there is because in Australia, if you're going to work with people under 18 years of age, people in Australia, people under 18 years of age are, are legally children. And in order to work with them whilst their parents are not physically present in the room, um, you need to have what's called a working with children check, which is just a 40 or so dollar um, fee that you go and you, you know, I think you can do it online. Um, and it's basically a police check to make sure that you're a fit and proper person to be working with children, that, you know, uh, you're not going to pose a threat to those children. So uh, if you are going to be working with children, you need to go get a working with children check. And that, you know, costs just a handful of dollars and should take like a three days or a week or something to complete. Um, and then you can work with people under 18 years of age whilst their parents are not physically present in the room. 
Um, and in that case, you can sort of take that out of the contract. Although I would put in something along the lines of, uh, again, I'm not a well, I'm not a lawyer, but I would, I guess, I would want to talk to a lawyer, or maybe even you know, Doctor Google, um, about uh, you know what obligations you might have in relation to working with children, and maybe there there might need to be some kind of clause inserted um, there. So yeah, I guess I would, uh, if I were you, I would go get a working with children check, and then I would um, you know go and consult a lawyer and. You know, really, there, there. You can find some really great lawyers online who will give you email advice, and this is all you need um, about, you know, um, what if anything you need to add to that template. So that, that's my advice. Hope that helps, Camilo. Uh, Sean, now we're up to the final question. I know it's been a long one this week. Uh, we've had a lot of questions. So Shawnee says, hi, Raf. I'm currently working through my master's in sports psychology, and naturally the mental aspects of Pilates intrigues me a huge amount. I was wondering if you had any book or article recommendations for me that look at either the mental side of Pilates or just any mindset-focused books that you've come across. Uh, well... Uh, yes, I do. So there's actually one, I'm just going to look it up on the internet. Um, there are, so probably the, the first book I'd recommend would be Caged Lion, uh, by John Steele, which is a history of Pilates uh, from the very early days of uh, Joseph's life to uh, the present day, and has a quite a profound reflection on the mental side and attaining a flow state. And basically, he comes to the conclusion that the flow state is what's special about Pilates and is what makes Pilates, you know, uh, so beneficial for people. Um, so I recommend you go and read that if you haven't already and listen to my interview, which is on our blog, which is breathe.edu.au forward slash blog, and then just search up John Steele or Caged Lion. Um, and we talk about that. Um, and then there's a book by the actual uh, fellow who sort of invented or discovered the notion of flow which I'm going to butcher his uh, name, but uh, it's something along the lines of Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Um, and the name of the book is Finding Flow, The Psychology of Engagement with Everyday Life. And he was an academic, or he is an academic, um, and a psychologist or a sociologist, and this was published in the late 90s. Uh, and... Yeah, so Finding Flow, I think that is probably number two on my list. Number three would be Tiny Habits by B.J. Fogg, and that is an evidence-based uh, book on developing habits, uh, you know, developing new habits and also uh, stopping old habits. Uh, then the one, the one Thing by Gary Keller, which is about focus and choosing what's truly important and choosing to do that and choosing to not do everything else. So that's the one thing. And then another one called Change Maker 
by John Berardi. And that is specifically about coaching in the fitness business, fitness industry. So whether you're a, talking about diet or exercise or weight loss or whatever, um, it's about helping people change their behavior and achieve their goals. Because really in the health and fitness world, we're really in the business of behavior change. And uh, that's the, sort of the, the central theme of the book is uh, a great coach is not necessarily the one who's got the best diet plan or the best exercise program, but it's the one who's got the best skills around helping people actually do the diet or the exercise program. Um, And then a couple of uh, ones which kind of, I think, are super awesome. I'm not sure exactly how uh, closely they're related to what you're interested in, but I'm going to put them on here anyway because I think they're both awesome. One is Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss, and that is basically Tim Ferriss interviewing, I can't remember the number, but let's say a hundred of like just the world's most successful people in so many realms. So he has politicians, business people, sports people, entertainers, you know, he has like all all artists, you know, lots of different um, people, chess masters, <laughs> poker players. Um, and he basically, you know, tries to deconstruct their their mentality, their mindset, their habits, their routines, their the ways of thinking. Um, so Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Um, and then finally, um, and you've probably already read this, but I'm just going to throw it out there, Motivational Interviewing by William Miller and Stephen Rolnick, which is uh, motiva- motivational interviewing. Like I said, you probably know all about it, but just in case you don't, um, it is a uh, behavior, it's, it's a way of having conversations about behavior change with people. Um, it's got a very strong evidence base in the psychology literature. There's over 200 published studies on it, and it has been shown to be effective in behavior change in health, as well as in uh, other areas like addiction. So motivational interviewing, uh, definitely on my uh, all-time top list of uh, psychology texts, but I'm not sure if it's about mindset per se. So there you have it. Uh, John Steele, Cage Lion, Finding Flow by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, apologies for butchering the name. Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. The One Thing by Gary Keller. Changemaker by John Berardi. And special mentions for Tools of Titan by Tim Ferriss and Motivational Interviewing by William Miller and Stephen Relnick. Well, that was a big one. And those are all the questions from this week. So thank you, everybody who sent questions in. I hope you found the answers informative and satisfying. And uh, those of you listening who didn't send questions in, thanks for listening. It gives me a kick to do these, and I'm glad you find them helpful. Um, If you would like to send a question in, I would love to hear from you, and you don't need to be a Breathe Education graduate or student or even a future student. You can just be a free-ranging member of the universe um, who has an interest in anatomy, biomechanics, physiology, Pilates, or matters related, um, and uh, send me in your question. And I don't know the answers to many of these when I receive them, but I just go and look them up because... I'm lucky enough to have created myself a job where basically my job is to go and look up research and then 
tell people about it. So, and that's pretty much my dream job. So thank you very much. Hope you're well. Hope your family are well. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. See ya. Thank <laughs> you.